Welcome to Songcraft, conversations with great songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you in-depth interviews with the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know their names, and you definitely know their songs. We bring you their stories. You can hear all our episodes, check out our bonus content, sign up for our email list, and contact us directly at songcraftshow.com. Also, please take a moment to like us at facebook.com slash songcraftshow and follow us on Twitter at songcraftshow. You're listening to a remix of Genie in a Bottle, as recorded by Christina Aguilera and co-written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Pam Shane. After establishing herself in Europe, the New Zealand native broke through to international songwriting success when Genie in a Bottle hit number one in more than 20 countries, sold millions of copies around the world, cemented Christina Aguilera's place as a new pop superstar, and earned Shane an Ivor Novello Award for International Hit of the Year. Pam went on to pen the single Mirror Mirror for the Norwegian pop duo M2M, which landed in the top 20 on the U.S. dance chart, as well as He Loves You Not, which was recorded by the girl group Dream, hit number two on the Billboard pop chart, and was certified gold after selling more than a half million copies in the U.S. She went on to write Irresistible, the title track to Jessica Simpson's second album, which reached number 15 on the Billboard pop singles chart in 2001. Pam also co-wrote the top 40 single She Said for teen pop singer-turned-Academy Award-winning actress Brie Larson and the number one hit Lighthouse for South African Idol winner Elvis Blue. Other artists who've recorded her songs include Sheena Easton, O-Town, Nick Lachey, Lindsay Lohan, C.C. Winans, Vitamin C, Corinne Bailey Ray, Demi Lovato, Seal, and others. In addition to her creative efforts, Pam is also a tireless advocate for the songwriting community and has been in the trenches fighting for fair legislation and business practices that support the songwriting profession. Well, here we are in 2017. We made it. Absolutely. It's good to uh, good to start a new year. Happy New yep. Year to you. Same. Happy New Year to you. And uh, man, 2016 was kind of a tough year for the entertainment industry, musicians in particular. Yeah, musicians and songwriters yeah. specifically. Yeah, I'm not sad to see 2016 go. I think no. that was a particularly rough year for a lot of reasons. But um, you know, to to lose people like Prince, um, yeah. you know, Leonard Cohen, Leon Russell, my personal favorite songwriter in the country genre is Merle Haggard, yeah, and you know, we lost him this past year. We lost. Uh, Red Simpson, who was a, a Songcraft yeah. guest here previously, and you know from from Glenn Fry on down, and we could spend the rest of the day talking about some of the people that we lost in the songwriting world last year, and it yeah. was it's just a bummer. I mean, it's uh, it, it's sad to see people that you admire and whose music has influenced your life, and to know that wow, they're just not here anymore. Yeah, I mean, and on Christmas Day, you know, to see the news that George Michael had passed away. Yeah, at the that age was shocking. Fifty three. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, George Michael was a guy that for me was was very influential, um, especially in the way I sort of learned to put melody together. He was such a great melody writer, such a great singer, um, and kind of a guy that really didn't get his due, in my opinion, critically, for the great songwriter that he was. Uh, yeah. Sort of got, sort of slagged off as just being like a, a fluffy, you know, light pop guy without any substance. But, you know, those songs, those songs were great. I mean, yeah. the, the Faith album had six top five singles on it. Just Jeez. think about that. Yeah, that guy wrote those songs by himself. Right, right. I think he was about 21 years old at the time. Wow. Um, and then, you know, overall had eight number ones in yeah. his career as a writer. Um, and 
yeah, just just a really sad uh, to lose him and to see him go. Um, I remember being, you know, on that on that topic when I was in college and was kind of a budding, you know, aspiring songwriter and musician. And as with the arrogance that only uh, a kid that age can muster, <laughs> right. you know, thought was more concerned with looking down on stuff that that I thought was beneath me or or that the art didn't rise to a certain level. And I remember having a conversation with a guy who's a piano player, a musician that I admired who was older than me, and I made kind of a cutting remark about Shania Twain who was right. big at the time. And you know, I wasn't uh, necessarily like a fan of that music and I thought it would impress this guy yeah. to sort of distance myself from <laughs> the you know, the the what appealed to the masses as just sort of this right. pop music. And I remember he just said one line to me which was uh yeah you try writing a song that is as catchy and well constructed as a shania twain hit <laughs> and it really made me start thinking about pop music in a different way and you're right about george michael it's the somebody who comes from the 80s in particular yeah. there's a lot of and even prince to some degree to maybe people who are not musicians i mean if you're a musician there's no denying right, you, you know it. what what prince is all about but you know you think of the costumes you think of the image you think of kind of the more like visual aspects of the MTV era and sort of that pop culture thing and sometimes the the genius of the songwriting can kind of get lost in the the flash and the and right. even some of the styles that kind of fade and look right. a little kind of funny in in retrospect so um you know George Michael even did that album Listen Without Prejudice you know right. after sort of his heyday that was like hey you know forget about the window dressing look yes. at the substance and that was my favorite album of his i yeah. mean without a doubt um I went back and listened to it the other night um, after getting the news. Um, and that album, I would encourage anyone to go give it a listen. Um, just some great songwriting. I almost use the word songcraft. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a good, it's a good word. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, somebody who knows their way around a pop song is our guest today, Pam Shane. Yeah, I definitely. mean, was there a bigger hit than Genie in a Bottle? Yeah, I think of that whole kind of uh, Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears, NSYNC, Backstreet Boys period of pop music and to me that song in particular is one that kind of stands out as representing the best of yes. that strain of of pop music and again well constructed well written pop music yeah. that just because it appealed to teenagers just because um it was on top 40 radio in no way diminishes the integrity of like how great some of those songs are actually constructed Absolutely. i mean airtight songwriting great melodies um and pam just keeps doing it um we'll we'll hear more about all the great songs that she's written um, but she's so talented, so warm, and I'm really glad that we got a chance to sit down and talk to her. Yeah, it was great for me because I know you've known her and worked with her for a few years and, and always spoken highly of her. So this is the first time I got to meet her. Um, great opportunity, great person. I share your uh, view of her and, and great respect for her. Uh, I just wish that I had hooked up the mic cable uh, maybe <laughs> better than uh, than I did. Yeah, I, you had one job. One job. No, yeah, and to, to our <laughs> listeners, in, in the first half of this interview, you will occasionally hear some some pops and crackles. And that's usually the kind of thing that we like to eliminate, but uh, we're only human. Yeah. And just because it's pop. <laughs> oh, oh wow. yikes. With that, <laughs> let's listen to Pam Shane. Pam, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. Well, you happen to be the very first Songcraft guest to originally hail from New Zealand. Ah. Um, we often talk to writers about growing up in the southern part of the U.S. and hearing country and R&B as a child, or maybe they've been in New York cutting their teeth on all the music that town has to offer. Talk to us about a New Zealand upbringing and how that built your musical background. Wow. Okay. 
<laughs> it's pretty scary. <laughs> um, actually, I was brought up. Uh, my parents were very social people, and um, New Zealand is quite a small country, um, as you know. There, um, at the time, there were about three million people and sixty-five million sheep. <laughs> so dairy farming was quite, <laughs> quite uh, popular. Right. Um, and my parents um, used to have uh, their friends. My, my dad loved playing darts, and he built a pool mm. table, and they used to have friends over every every weekend or every other weekend, and. Um, they love music, and um, in particular, country music. Really? Huh. So I was brought up on Dolly Parton, Charlie Pride, um, a load of other, Tammy Wynette, wow. yeah. uh, a load of other um, country artists. And then um, the pop music that was playing at the time was ABBA. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, I remember standing in standing in front of a mirror with my hairbrush singing <laughs> to ever songs right. and uh so it was very melodic sort of songs right and um i think that just gave me a love for for songwriting yeah really well i understand that you started your career as a, a singer before you really became known as a songwriter and uh from our uh, digging into your background, we Ooh. we uh, <laughs> digging digging deep into oh, the background. No. <laughs> we uh, we discovered that you apparently were singing in a cover band at the uh, Sheraton Skyline Hotel at the oh, Heathrow no. Airport in your <laughs> in your early days of your music career. Um, talk a little bit about that experience of just the um, kind of challenge of performing an environment like that, and and just a little insight into what kind of songs you were singing in those days and, and what your career trajectory was, what you kind of had in mind at that okay. point for, for what you wanted. Okay, yeah. So I, um, I left uh, New Zealand as a teenager, probably I think I was about 17, and went to live in the UK. Um, I'd lost my father. My father had passed, and um, I just couldn't concentrate on school. And mm. I love music, and I didn't actually leave to go to live in England because of music, my, my brother and sister lived there. And um, my sister worked in, in the airlines and got me a job uh, in an office in yeah. an airline and I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> it was the most boring thing. So at the time there was a, a magazine, a newspaper called Melody Maker. Oh, mm -hmm. sure. And, um, and I was like scanning the pages of Melody Maker trying to find a, uh, an evening job, you know, that right. I could, and I could play a bit of guitar. Uh, yeah. I had uh, learned to play guitar at the age of seven. Wow. And um, I was like, oh, I'll just get a, you know, uh, a, an evening job playing and singing, very naively. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but found this um, advertisement for um, this hotel band and went and auditioned for it. And I got it. I landed the job, mm. and I was like, "Oh god!" So I had to buy had to buy a JC one twenty and an electric guitar, and I was like, "Oh my god, nice. this is amazing!" <laughs> right. And so I gave up my day job and um, and did that for three years. Yeah, and that was sort of the beginning of my career. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, what what was a typical set list? A set list. Oh my goodness. Oh. 
Um, oh, it was probably something hideous like, um, no, I can't do that, can I? <laughs> <laughs> I can't name a song. You might have interviewed yeah. them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there were covers. It was probably probably something delightful. Like. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so you I, guys were just playing like pop just hits pop of the day. Covers, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, it was fun. I yeah. enjoyed it. I cut my teeth on it. Yeah. And um, then went on to do uh, more sort of freelance work. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it wasn't long before your vocal talent started to get you recognized. Um, and over time, I mean, you've had jobs singing backup for really well-known artists like Brian Adams, Celine Dion, even Elton John. You know, we talk to writers a lot about the concept of serving the song. Yeah. And I imagine you get quite the education in song serving when you kind of move to the background into that structured environment of, you know, providing a service for a song recording. I'd love to know about some, some of what you learned during that process of being a background singer that kind of informed the creator that you are today. Well, yeah, I guess you learn what your strengths are and um, you do push yourself. Uh, I've done a lot of session work and really enjoyed it. But it gets to the point, uh, it got to the point for me where I just wanted to be more creative with mm -hmm. the songwriting. And I, I did, I learned an awful lot about form yeah. in songwriting and... Um, structure and what you can add as a backing singer mm. um the arrangement side of things um which i bring into production now um yeah it was all uh, a great learning curve mm. for me uh, i wanted to be an artist myself so that was the tough thing was doing backing vocals for a lot of people and um when you can change your voice and be good at doing lots of different styles um, sometimes it's not good for you as an artist because you, you're sort of mimicking lots of different styles. Right. Mm -hmm. That was my biggest problem. I don't no. think I had a unique enough sounding voice um, to make it as an artist. Mm. I could sing lots of different styles well. And yeah. while you were doing this kind of backup work, you were already beginning to write songs? and Yes, yes, I was. Um, I think the sort of catalyst was um, I, I, I'd done a big tour with the Pet Shop Boys mm. and I really really um, loved it and at the same time when, just when I got off the road I was offered uh, my first publishing deal um, by an independent in the UK we were living in the UK at the time and um, it was my first it was my it was my husband basically um, but we weren't married at the time, obviously. Right. But so, but he offered me uh, a publishing deal, and um, and I decided to take the publishing deal rather than um, go on tour again. And I'm pleased I did that. I was about to say, I think it's probably a smart choice. <laughs> well, actually, the tour was uh, that I was offered <laughs> uh, was worth an awful lot more money than the um, publishing deal. Um, uh, but I made the right choice. Yeah, the yeah. long term. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the first time that we see the name Pam Shane making a splash on the charts as a songwriter um, was with the song She Wants You. And that was originally recorded by Dara Rollins, an artist from the Czech Republic, but ultimately ended up in the hands of a British pop singer, Billy Piper, who took it all the way to the number three spot in the UK in 1999. <laughs>
little bit about that song and how that came together and just kind of going through the experience of that first taste of success. Okay. Um, I remember the song really well. Um, Tim Laws, who I had written it with, might have actually been the first song we wrote. Hmm. Um, I don't remember that part. Right. <laughs> but um, Tim had his studio at the bottom of his garden and his like garden shed. And, and, you know, I went and wrote with him this day. And I think we wrote it in a day and I demoed the song. And it took about a week or a week and a half for him to send me back the song. But I remember sitting down and for the first time in my life had received back a demo that I loved, mm, huh. that I absolutely loved. The production was great. Um, Tim, you know, was obviously very talented at what he did and um, it really stood out. Yeah. yeah. And we were really excited about it. And then it was pitched to Billy. Yeah. Um, and she had the hit with it. And um, it was a great feeling. Yeah. You know, it was my first first bit of success and I think it had taken I can't remember what year do you remember what year that came out? I think 99 99, 99. Yeah. Well, it came so, out at the end of 98 and ended up hitting its top spot I think in 99 okay. so that was seven years after I signed my first publishing deal so. and you had had some cuts up to that point I think the Sheena Easton cut was before that right yeah. And but nothing that had that nothing had really that had hit. sort of you know, taken yeah, uh, flight yeah. like that, and um, so yeah, there was a lot of uh, a lot of elbow grease and a lot of work before yeah. that yeah. that happened. Um, but it was a great moment, and um, I remember at the time. I think um, we were decorating our house or painting or doing something. My husband's normally painting something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he. Uh, we were listening to the radios. Uh, the charts yeah. that day and we were like oh my god what's it gonna be you know? <laughs> right then when it came on at number three we were like jumping around the kitchen That's with a paintbrush nice. That's <laughs> so great <laughs> you know it's it's funny to think about um you know we we look back and we say oh well this is sort of the first moment that we see uh pam shane's name appear but as you say that moment came after seven years of of hard work and and it's not like it just appeared overnight. And I'm sure that during those seven years, there was probably plenty of near misses and frustrations and, and, and all that. But, um, you know, everything kind of has its, its time and looking back on it from the perspective of, of your success now, um, what do you feel like those seven years, uh, kind of taught you or how, how those seven years shaped you into who you would become as a writer? Oh my goodness. Um, Patience, I guess. It taught me patience. Um, <laughs> right. Not that I'm an extremely patient person, but um, gosh, it's it's tough. You know, you have to hang in there and just be so persistent and um, not necessarily believe everything that somebody tells you hmm. um, and have a thick, grow a thick skin. And I'm a pretty, yeah. pretty emotional kind of um person and it used to really hurt when mm. I got a um a rejection sure um I remember finding out once that I that I could I had a song on hold with Tina Turner and Celine Dion I remember finding out the same day that they mm. both didn't make uh, it oh, wow. 
That was a pretty depressing yeah. day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, can so I get one of them? <laughs> you just got to lift yourself out of it, you know. Yeah. Otherwise, it destroy you. Yeah, yeah. So kind of the ability to not let it affect you personally too much to be able to sort of take a step back and you have to there's yeah. too much competition out there you can't yeah. take it personally you know, right. you just got to keep keep going at it yeah yeah well after getting that first taste of success with uh she wants you it wasn't long before you found yourself with an absolute smash hit with a new artist named christina aguilera who burst onto the scene with genie in a bottle which you wrote with david frank and steve kipner That song went to number one in not just the U.S., but in country after country after country. Truly a multi, multi, multi million selling worldwide sensation. Um, but I understand that the song wasn't necessarily pegged for Christina Aguilera from the beginning. And, and I'd love to hear how that sort of unfolded and how that song kind of wound up finding its home with the obviously the right artist. Okay. It's... Um... It's the kind of um, success that every songwriter wants and wishes for and hopes for. And um, all I can tell you is it was the most surreal <laughs> moment, you know, finding out that you had a number one record, especially in America. Um, so uh, what happened was uh, I was doing some transatlantic um, trips here and uh, living in the UK, coming to LA and Nashville. And... Um, you know, we used to do it on a pretty string, you know, shoestring budget. Yeah. Um, uh, I can't remember where we were staying at the time, but but um, a friend of mine had just written with uh, David Frank and said to me, you must write with David. And mm. um, there's another guy called Steve Kipner, this Australian guy. Um, maybe phone them up and say hi and see if you can put together a car ride so I, I did I, I phoned David and um, and he was like well who are you <laughs> what have you done <laughs> right and I was like oh you may not have heard of me I've you know had a little bit of success in the UK um, but I'd you know really love the opportunity to work with you blah 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 and yeah. he's like okay and I said is there any chance we can get another person on board a third person um, because, you know, in a day, you know, pull it all together. And I, and I actually like a, a three-way collaboration. It's, it's the energy is good. Yeah. And uh, so he said, yeah, okay, there's a guy called Steve Kipner. S Steve Kipner <laughs> lives down the road <laughs> <laughs> right. um, in Topanga Canyon. And, um, and so Steve came up and we, we literally, we got together. It was the first song we'd ever written. David had played us three backing tracks that he was working on. And Steve and I chose that one in particular because it had that crazy double bass drum thing going on. Yeah. And it just sounded different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, we, we put it all together. I went back the following day because Steve had to tra travel somewhere and, um, and put the vocal down. I demoed it with David. 
And then I went off to Nashville a couple of days later and um, they finished it up, finished the production and pitched it to, pitched it out there. Uh, one of which was Christina. Yeah. Uh, Ron Fair was the A&R guy. Um, there was a girl group called Innocence, also on the same label, but out of um, New York. Mm. And um, the other interest was Paula Abdul. Mm. Ah. And so we then had to make a decision on you know, who we wanted to go with. So yeah. right. we sort of started making phone calls and finding out who was on all those records. Right. And when it was coming out, blah, blah, blah. And um, uh, we were secured the first single on Christina, which is a very, very difficult thing to get. Yeah, you know, yeah. the, re the record was ready to go. It was just a no-brainer. The guys yeah. got the production on it as well. And um, thank God we went with Christina. Yeah, it, yeah, you know, yeah. It, it was right. The timing was right. Yeah. Well, a few writers ever have a hit with the magnitude of Genie in a Bottle. Um, and I'm sure, obviously, that brings new open doors and opportunities. and But maybe even some pressures to live up to new expectations. Um, I'd like to hear about how it changed your life and career for the better, and if any, what challenges that, that kind of success presents. Yeah, uh, well, suddenly the phone starts to ring, which is, um, you know, strange. <laughs> uh -huh. And some doors start to open, and, um, and it's wonderful, and you try and take every opportunity you possibly can. Um, you can't take your foot off the gas because this yeah. is your opportunity to push through and get as many songs away as possible because suddenly the light's on you and people yeah. want to hear what else you've got going on. You go from songwriter Pam Shane who's trying to prove herself to hit maker Pam Shane that's got to bring the hit yeah, thing. and it's scary. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's interesting because you mentioned, you know, like calling David and basically saying hey, I'd like to write with you. And you have to sort of sell yourself. Yeah. You know, like, well, I've had this success in the UK and here's who I am and can you give me a shot? Now, all of a sudden, a year later, you're probably getting more of those calls than you can possibly handle of people who want to write with you. It has to be kind of a mind trip to go from being the person who is pursuing uh, for all these years, pursuing those opportunities to suddenly you are the pursued. Yes. Um, I mean, that's got to be a pretty stark flip it is wild i got a call once from um tommy matola mm -hmm. um for those of you who don't know he used to be the uh, i think the president of yeah. sony records in right. in new york and um was mariah carey's husband at the time um and uh not actually not at the time i think he divorced Mar mariah carey uh anyway <laughs> not relevant we'll, we'll, we'll check the timeline <laughs> he phoned and um started singing down the phone to me which was um um humorous <laughs> right. and um told me he wanted me to come to new york and write for Celine's record mm. with uh, Corey Rooney, who was his top producer at the time. And so I did do that. Um, and that was quite something, actually, um, going down to Sony Studios to write with Corey. It was the first time I'd actually written a song. I don't know whether I can say this on radio, but I'm going to. <laughs> 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 um, with a man outside with a gun. <laughs> um, 
we went into a studio and there was a guy, um, um, Pagan Hood, <laughs> was <laughs> outside the studio, uh, the security guy. Wow. And um, uh, Nigel and myself were quite. Um, was Celine there? Or was a this little to scared protect? at the time, thinking, <laughs> right. uh, I'm only writing Who's the gun for? <laughs> was this to protect you and the producer, or was Celine I there? I think so. No, Celine <laughs> wasn't there. Wow. Well, it might, might have been there to protect Tommy. I don't know. Right, <laughs> right, right. right. Or, or your intellectual property. Your ideas were just that good. <laughs> right. Yeah. Got to have uh, Actually, card. a funny, I've got to tell you this funny story because um, it, it happened at that same session. Um, you know, he came downstairs to, to listen to our song and I was shaking nervously and, and thinking I had to sing in front of Tommy Mottola. Yeah. You know. And um, it was a very scary moment. So I sang and... He was like, "Oh, yeah, you can, you can, you can sing," <laughs> and um, his uh, his his lady was there, T- Talia, his his wife, okay. um, who was very sweet. And um, anyway, they went off to hear some mixes in another room, and I was told I could go. So I I go outside. They say, "Oh, your your car's here." So I go outside and s- sit in the car, and I think, "Oh, this is nice." Nice, you know, nice car. So the, the, the guy turns around, the, the chauffeur, and turns around and goes, "Lady, you're in the wrong car. This is Tommy Matola's car." <laughs> hey, no wonder it was nice. <laughs> I thought it arrived. You know. right. uh, meanwhile, my my stinky old yellow cab was across across the road. That it was. That's awesome. so funny. <laughs> so you continued to establish yourself as a writer of catchy pop singles such as M2M's Mirror Mirror, which charted around the world, and Dream's He Loves You Not, which went to number two on the Billboard pop chart and number 15 on the R&B pop chart in the year 2000. No chains to unlock, so free to do what he wants. He's into what he's got. He loves me, he loves you, no matter what you do. He's never gonna be with you. He's into what he's got. He loves me, he loves you not. And that's another one that was written with your Genie in a Bottle collaborators, David Frank and Steve Kipner. Um, at this point in your career, your success had come primarily with young female singers and uh, groups that were singing songs that you wrote with male co-writers. Um, and as the only woman in the room creating songs for females to sing, did you have any sense of needing to represent a particular perspective or, or to be... Um, bringing a certain kind of experience to the content of the songs that would perhaps be more challenging for a male writer? In other words, is there pressure being a female songwriter, creating, <laughs> <laughs> being the female voice in the room when you're creating songs for, for a female artist? Well, um, yeah, I think I had to... to to talk a little a little louder because <laughs> <laughs> to get my voice heard yeah I definitely most definitely um I think it was probably a fluke in a sense uh that it was mainly female artists that cut my songs around then um or, or it wasn't maybe it was just my because I demoed my songs so yeah. um I think I was just the right um the right voice for, for those particular pitches yeah um 
I think uh, He Loves You Not was held off in the number one spot by independent women. Oh. Um, we were really crossing <laughs> fingers that, that we could get her up to the number one spot. Um, Beyonce. Beyonce. <laughs> yeah, no, we were. Oh, I was over the moon. I mean, it, it uh, did really well on radio, and um, I believe the girls are actually touring now. You know, uh, another young female artist um, emerged with a Pam Shane hit in 2001 when Jessica Simpson took Irresistible to number 15 on the Billboard pop chart. Christina and Jessica have had careers in the public eye that lasted beyond kind of their initial, you know, splash into the into the world. What do you think it was about them? I know I know their careers have been really different in the trajectory, um, but you know, I'd love to hear your insight on kind of what makes some of these artists stay in a pop world that tends to move along quickly. I think a lot of it's to do with the team of people that you have around you. I mean, they 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 had. Um great fans um the record company was putting a lot of money into it and it takes a village to make that happen um it takes the songs it takes there's as you said there are so many um elements to 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 help that um drive um lots of things lots of things to make an an artist stick and stand out you know i think christina was and it still is a particularly um, um, ambitious person and has a huge amount of talent. Yeah. You know, uh, all those things come into it. Paul, being the uh, more musically sophisticated of the two of us, was kind of observing that a lot of these songs that, that we're talking about that you wrote, um, they oftentimes have kind of a minor key um, kind of approach, and it adds kind of this gravitas, like a little bit of darkness, a little bit of drama to these very um, unapologetically pop productions. Um, And there were a lot of hits in that era, in the late 90s and the early 2000s, that were kind of built on that dark chord progression, but with this very pop sensibility. And, uh, you know, Brandy and Monica's The Boy Is Mine, or Britney's Baby One More Time, or NSYNC's Bye Bye Bye, they all kind of have that kind of element to them that, that makes them kind of some of the standout pop hits uh, yeah. from that era. Um, what's your take on kind of a writer's need to be able to take the temperature of where the melodic sensibilities of, of pop music is happening and, and, and even how to not only have a sense of what's happening in that regard and chord structures and, and melodies, but also how to kind of stay a step ahead of that as you're, you know, kind of competing in a sense in a, in a pop it, market. Yeah. It's got, it's really hard because, um, you know, you don't want to be one of the sheep that, that there's like music's so derivative, you know, uh, there are yeah. so many songs on the radio. You had, right you had now. enough of sheep in your, in your growing yeah, up years. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Did I mention sheep <laughs> twice in my interview? <laughs> we found the secret to your songwriting success. You don't <laughs> want to be a sheep. Yeah. <laughs> I've never written a song about a sheep. <laughs> There's always, There's always time. time. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, yeah it, you want to be different. You want to stand out. You 
be, and, and you and you want to do something that's current um, that is going on in the radio. It's it's a very fine line to 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 find that thing. And believe me, if um, I could repeat having a number one uh, <laughs> record mm. <laughs> again and again and again, I would have done it. Right. Um, it's not an easy thing to repeat. Um, yeah. I think you just got to keep moving with the times. Um, songwriting has evolved and changed so much in the time that I've been uh, a songwriter. And um, it's just the series of hooks mm-hmm. um, I- instead of a streamlined, uh, but it works. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying it's wrong, it, it just works, you know, um, instead of that streamlined sort of uh, classic song as we know it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, lyrics have changed. Um, Gee, uh, you know, uh, if you don't shock, then, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm scared of what, what my son is listening to on the yeah. radio right now. Um, in fact, I have to tell him to turn it off if he's listening to it in front of me because it's got so many expletives. Yeah. <laughs> wow. yeah. Um, I'm still very much uh, uh, a person who loves a guitar and a, and a voice. Yeah. You know, the, the, the singer-songwriter kind yeah. of artist yeah uh, there are so many amazing artists out there and uh good music is is still being played which is, yeah which is wonderful you just have to find uh, it you just have to keep moving <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah for sure you know i want to fast forward a little bit um and talk about she said a single for brie larson who we've now come to know as an, a successful award-winning actress sold a lot of CD singles, enough to reach number 31 on Billboard's Hot 100 single sales chart, but the album didn't make quite the same splash. Um, you know, you've been around a lot of hits, and you've seen a lot of artists' careers develop right in front of you. Um, we know in the case of She Said that the song was resonating with audiences, so what, in your opinion, makes one album take off when another doesn't? <laughs> Timing. Um, hmm. I don't know. Each and every one of us, our journeys, uh, you know, Brie was obviously meant to be an, an actress, yeah. not yeah. a singer. Right. Um, and actually, um, Billy Piper is a damn good actress. Mm. Huh. Um, she's a better actress than she was a singer, and I'm sure she wouldn't hate me if I said that. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, we find our... our um, destination eventually yeah um, what we should be doing and I think uh, that was a case of yeah. in point with uh, she said yeah she definitely found her right timing yeah <laughs> now all this time that you you know you were still living in the UK while you're having the success and you made the move to the United States in 2008 so I guess this is kind of a two-part question okay. number one is everything's working for you why move to the States Number two, if the plan was to move to the States, why wait so long? (laughs) Oh, Paul, why did you have to ask that question? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so um, we should have moved um, to the United States uh, 
when Jeannie was going on, around the sort of two, the early 2000s, um, if we were smart. <laughs> <laughs> but instead, we bought um, our dream country house in, mm. in, in the UK, in, in the, the countryside, a uh, 600-year-old house, um, wow. which was lovely, you know. And that's what we wanted, and we wanted to try uh, having a family soon after. Uh, I wasn't ready to move to the States. Nigel was. Mm. <laughs> he, he he wanted to move. Um, and if you knew how bad the weather was in the UK, <laughs> you'd have <laughs> gone, why? <laughs> why did you stay so long? Um, so we, we bought an apartment here in 2002 mm. uh, in West Hollywood. And that's because we were spending so much money on hotels coming mm. back and forth doing these, these writing trips. Because obviously um, the trips that we'd done writing Genie and that had been a success. So we would have been stupid to have stopped the trips. So sure. we kept coming, kept, you know, extending our network of people. Uh, I kept going to Nashville. And um, it was about 2000, uh, I, I had a son in 2003. We had a son in 2003. And, um, you know, when you've got a young baby, it's not the easiest thing to to move country, let alone house. <laughs> right, yeah, right, <laughs> right. So we um, decided to stay put for a little while, but we were still talking about possibly moving. And then I think it was 2005 when Ollie was about two, um, we started looking at houses again mm. when we were over here yeah. and um, and made a mistake, uh, put, a, put a deposit down on a, on a place and then pulled out. Because oh. mm. the timing was just wrong. Yeah. yeah. So we we waited till two thousand and eight and and did it then when just before the uh, the world crash happened. <laughs> 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 so we got in by the skin of our teeth. Yeah. And, right. Um, I'm very happy to be here. Yeah. Well, you know, often often writers will make a move to be closer to a publisher. You know, if you sign with somebody, maybe they'll move to New York or move to Nashville. But as you've mentioned before, your publisher's already in the house. Um, with Nigel, <laughs> uh, I would love to know, you know. No, uh, you don't. I mean, you know, Scott, as we said, grew up with a publisher as a dad. And he's, he's told stories on the, on the podcast before about uh, his dad's responses to a couple songs and even, you know, um, seeing him write as a kid and telling him to go to bed. And, but, uh, you know, just interested in some of the benefits and the challenges of oh. having your publisher across the dinner table. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, we've been together 24 years and um, have worked together that amount of time and um, yeah, I feel so grateful that, that he has been my manager and my publisher for this many years because he's my sounding board and mm. um, it's probably worse for him <laughs> um, you know I, I know all I know is that when he cries uh, on a song <laughs> it's a winner <laughs> <laughs> right. if he doesn't he's like mm, gives me the look mm. it's like okay it's, it's, it's a loser <laughs> <laughs> right but I know he's been somebody that's been really great to have in your corner I'm so lucky I'm so lucky you know finding a manager is hard enough um, certainly someone you can trust and somebody you know who's got a, got your back yeah. 
you know, it's been a double-edged sword because it's been tough for him to go out and try and sell his wife, you know. Mm. Um, it's like, oh, God, here, here he comes to try and sell his wife again, <laughs> you know. But we had some success. It wasn't as if he was knocking down a door that was, you know, uh, a dead end. Yeah. Right, right. So, um, you know, we stuck it out and... Um, and uh, it's been it's been a ride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a ride. It's 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 tough working with your partner, yeah. Yeah. whether whatever business you're doing, um, because you know where do you where do you draw that line on the di- at the dinner table? Yeah. Oh, darling, did you pitch that song? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Pass me the salt. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you guys have obviously found a way to make it work because you have this you know string of success. Uh, to your credit and and you know some of the high profile artists that have recorded your songs over the years include Nick Lachey and Corinne Bailey Ray, Demi Lovato and uh, you even have an Elvis cut not Elvis Presley of course <laughs> yeah. but uh, wow, <laughs> but uh, Elvis Blue who um, was the winner of the Idols South Africa show kind yeah. of the American Idol of, of South Africa yeah. equivalent um, and he's a, a, a platinum selling artist and your song Lighthouse was a number one hit for him You know, in the U.S., we tend to be pretty focused on the U.S. only. Um, but talk about um, the pop market outside of America and what component that has been in your overall career success. I've got to say that that Nigel um, taught me well. You know, uh, being a publisher, him being a publisher, has taught me that you have to look at a world market as a songwriter and it's important to to travel and to go to those markets and to work with writers from those markets um, and with artists. And he pushed me to do that. Yeah. As much as I didn't want to go away from home, he pushed <laughs> me to do that. Right. Um, and I'm so grateful I did. Um, with South Africa, South Africa's been a big part of my life, um, sort of strangely, because I've never been there. Um, we know a fair few people there and um, a very dear friend, um, Benji Moody, who used to be at Universal Publishing. Um, he was actually our one of our best men at our wedding. Oh, nice. Uh, he's been a good friend for, for a good few years and he pitched my song to Elvis and that was the reason it sort of got yeah. got to him and got to number one. And then I eventually ended up working on his second album and got to meet him. He came out here yeah. to L.A. And I think I had about six songs on his second album. And mm. Lifeline went to a decent number in the charts there. Yeah. Um, and um, I've been doing a fair few uh, productions with my own production team. Uh, with African, South African artists oh, coming okay. here. Nice, nice. Which has been uh, really amazing. But what is uh, imperative as a songwriter is don't just look at one market. You know, I've, people all over the world love music. And yeah. um, 
as long as you're making money, which um, it's a tough, <laughs> it's a tough uh, occupation to be in, sure. uh, to earn money these days, um, just the way it is. But um, if you can look at other markets, yeah, then it's a sensible thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the uh, artists that Paul and I have have been a big fan of over the years is Seal, oh. and you had the opportunity to uh, have your song "You Get Me" appear on his 2010 album Seal Six Commitment. Like a beautiful song, you've heard a million times. Like that rainbow's end, you can never find. But I understand that, that that song actually wasn't initially written with Seal in mind. Kind no. of tell us about the genesis of that song and how Seal ended up uh, recording it. Um, I wrote the song with a very talented um, artist called Titer, Titer Lesson. He's from the Fair Isles. Mm. And I don't know whether you know where that is, but it's, I think, I believe, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, somewhere between... Um, Scotland and Iceland, it's oh. way up there. Yeah. Um, very remote place. And anyway, he came, he's an artist himself and managed by a um, very close friend, Christian Of Hansen, who um, used to be at BMI in London. And um, he put us together, and that was one of the first songs we wrote, I believe, ah. um, in our living room in the UK. Yeah. In our haunted house. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, and I remember Titer playing me the beginning of that. He had the, I think the verse melody, but he didn't have a chorus and he played it to me and I immediately sang the, the, the chorus melody. And he's like, Oh my God, that's it. That's <laughs> it. And, um, we, we fell in love with that song and I think it was cut several times, um, mm. by different artists it was never a hit. Yeah. Um, was picked up by an Italian jazz artist, very well known in Italy. Yeah. Um, she asked Seal to, to duet on the song with her, mm -hmm. which is how he first heard the song. And um, he fell in love with it and then did it on his record. Yeah. Wow. That's the most international story I've ever heard about a song where you have a New Zealand-born songwriter meeting with an artist from the Fair Isles. The song know, finds right? its way to an Italian jazz artist right. who brings it, brings to, it to a, seal. a British know, pop right? singer who has great acclaim in the United States. And yeah, yeah, that's, that's that wild, is about actually. as uh, international as it gets. Yeah, the passport of that song is well stamped. I felt very sophisticated just hearing you describe it. Actually, it's been cut about six times. Wow, I think well, that song. Nice. Um, yeah, uh, I got to, uh, to meet Seal in Spain um, not long after he um, had recorded the song, and he had a he was doing a gig when he was doing that soul wow. tour. And he was um, performing at a bull ring in Marbella, I believe. Mm. And we went along. Another stamp on the passport. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we went along. We were we just happened to be there. Um, and we went along because we knew his manager and he got us tickets. And um, 
I was thinking, oh, please let him sing this song, please. But he didn't. <laughs> anyway, we did get to meet him backstage and he came backstage and was so gracious and so lovely. He handed me his glass of champagne. He'd just come off stage, handed me his glass of champagne and then told me the story about how he first heard You Get Me and how grateful he was that wow. you know, we'd let him cut it. Cool. So, uh, well, you know, those first Seal records were coming out when, when we were younger and uh, the, the first one and the second one, I think we were in high school. And I remember thinking Seal was just the most mysterious <sighs> character. And when, when you talk about meeting him, I imagine he just sort of like appeared. <laughs> And well, then when you were done talking, maybe he just was gone. He's a mighty man. He, he's a mighty man. He's got an amazing presence. Yeah. And, um, he's not short. He's like a he's tall... He's definitely not short. Yeah. No. Uh, no, he was just, just so lovely. Wow. So lovely. Um, well, you've been more than just a successful songwriter. Um, you've become a voice for your industry and a representative for your colleagues in a time when it seems like it's more important than ever for writers to unite and seek change Talk a little bit about the group that you've organized, Sona, and what you guys are seeking to accomplish. Um, it was born about by having a breakfast with Michelle Lewis, Kay Hanley, and Shelley Pikin. And um, we were talking about how rubbish our uh, royalty checks had been. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, but really believed that it was time to do something. And... Um, Kudos to to Michelle and Kay for for starting this group, and we've all put in a lot of time. Um, we've been going for two years now. We have about two hundred members around that. And what is what does Sona stand for? Sona stands for Songwriters of North America, mm. and um, we're really an ag- advocacy group to raise um, raise awareness among our um, songwriting, songwriting fraternity, um, educating the younger writers um, on all the aspects of how we're earning our money mm. now um, since the digital age stepped in, um, some laws that need changing uh, that have been in force since the 1940s, yeah. um, and streaming rates, um, all those sort of things yeah. that uh, songwriters are earning less and less, and it's time for us creators to to step off the fence and s- speak for ourselves. Mm. Um, we have always been working away in our rooms, and I think sticking our fingers in our ears and going la 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 la. I'm not going to listen. Um, we're going to let our publishers and our PROs talk for us and speak for us. But no, it's time that we need to speak for ourselves mm. and um, find out what we can do to um, to improve things. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we are looking for more members um, mm. to sign up and give us their support. Um, How can people do that? Well, go to go to Sona, we are Sona.com, uh, com, and um, you will learn of everything that, that's going on in, in our world, how you can um, be a part of it, uh, even if it's just signing up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's very important. Uh, people, you know, we've had uh, great 
advances in our accessibility to music with services like Pandora and Spotify and, and Google, but in a lot of instances kind of at the expense of fair compensation for the creators of those songs. And of course, without the songs, we would have nothing to stream and nothing to, to listen to. And, and so, you know, it's the kind of thing that the average person might say, well, that's got nothing to do with me. I'm not a professional songwriter. But if you, if you like music, if you value music and you want to continue seeing good music coming to into the world to enjoy i think it's very important for even the average fan to educate themselves about some of what's mm. going on because it is people who care about music it is something we have to pay attention to absolutely scott and all, and all we're asking for really is fair compensation for the work that we are doing yeah, yeah. um and quite often um uh, people that, that aren't involved in music wouldn't be aware that you know, even if you have a hit, and how difficult it is to get a hit uh, these days, even if you have a hit, you have to wait a couple of years for the royalties to start coming through. Mm. So, you know, we're not like uh, a plumber or um, somebody who supplies a service and gets paid right. a check that right. day or that month. Yeah. Um, we have to wait a long time. Um, so, yeah, things are... Um, are looking brighter but we we need more support yeah and more songwriters just to educate mm -hmm. um and to know what's going on around us yeah definitely right, so we would encourage anyone who's listening to go to wearesona.com and find out more about what's being said there and more about what the issues are that are being discussed i mean all of us in this room are involved in the songwriting industry and um it's, it hits home for us yeah. and uh we're hoping that everybody that listens will will continue to educate themselves about um, what's happening in music and distribution and finance these days. Well, you know, I know that you and, and Paul have been friends for a little while, and he's always spoken highly of you, and so it's great to have the opportunity to officially meet you, and thank, thank you so you. much for inviting us into your home and sharing your time with us thank today. On One of my favorite writers, bar Aww, none. Yeah, don't yeah. it's really, you, really been a pleasure. It's been so. a pleasure, pleasure to, to do this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. You can find us by searching for Songcraft Show. And we look forward to getting together again with you next time for Songcraft, Conversations with Great Songwriters. <laughs>